Section 56 of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Book the Fourth, Chapter Three, Continued. We agreed on a form of letter, which I wrote, and which he copied on the spot. I entered into no particulars at starting. I simply asserted that I was the widow of the deceased Mr. Armadale, that I had been privately married to him, that I had returned to England on his sailing in the yacht from Naples, and that I begged to enclose a copy of my marriage certificate as a matter of form, with which I presumed it was customary to comply. The letter was addressed to the representatives of the late Allan Armadale, Esquire, Thorpe Ambrose, Norfolk, and the doctor himself carried it away and put it in the post. I am not so excited and so impatient for results as I expected to be, now that the first step is taken. The thought of midwinter haunts me like a ghost. I have been writing to him again, as before, to keep up appearances. It will be my last letter, I think. My courage feels shaken, my spirits get depressed, when my thoughts go back to Turin. I am no more capable of facing the consideration of midwinter at this moment than I was in the bygone time. The day of reckoning with him, once distant and doubtful, is a day that may come to me now, I know not how soon. And here I am, trusting myself blindly to the chapter of accidents, still. November 25th. At two o'clock today the doctor called again by appointment. He had been to his lawyers, of course without taking them into our confidence, to put the case simply of proving my marriage. The result confirms what he had already told me. The pivot on which the whole matter will turn, if my claim is disputed, will be the question of identity, and it may be necessary for the witness to make his declaration in the magistrate's presence before the week is out. In this position of affairs, the doctor thinks it important that we should be within easy reach of each other, and proposes to find a quiet lodging for me in his neighborhood. I am quite willing to go anywhere, for, among the other strange fancies that have got possession of me, I have an idea that I shall feel more completely lost to midwinter if I move out of the neighborhood in which his letters are addressed to me. I was awake and thinking of him again last night. This morning I have finally decided to write to him no more. After staying half an hour, the doctor left me, having first inquired whether I would like to accompany him to Hampstead to look for lodgings. I informed him that I had some business of my own which would keep me in London. He inquired what the business was. You will see, I said, tomorrow or the next day. I had a moment's nervous trembling when I was left by myself again. My business in London, besides being a serious business in a woman's eyes, took my mind back to midwinter in spite of me. The prospect of removing to my new lodging had reminded me of the necessity of dressing in my new character. The time had come now for getting my widow's weeds. My first proceeding, after putting my bonnet on, was to provide myself with money. I got what I wanted to fit me out for the character of Armadale's widow by nothing less than the sale of Armadale's own present to me on my marriage, the ruby ring. It proved to be a more valuable jewel than I had supposed. 
I am likely to be spared all money anxieties for some time to come. On leaving the jeweler's, I went to the great mourning shop in Regent Street. In four-and-twenty hours, if I can give them no more, they have engaged to dress me in my widow's costume from head to foot. I had another feverish moment when I left the shop, and, by way of further excitement on this agitating day, I found a surprise in store for me on my return to the hotel. An elderly gentleman was announced to be waiting to see me. I opened my sitting-room door, and there was old Bashwood. He had got my letter that morning, and had started for London by the next train to answer it in person. I had expected a great deal from him, but I had certainly not expected that. It flattered me. For the moment, I declare, it flattered me. I pass over the wretched creature's raptures and reproaches, and groans and tears, and weary long prosings about the lonely months he had passed at Thorpe Ambrose, brooding over my desertion of him. He was quite eloquent at times, but I don't want his eloquence here. It is needless to say that I put myself right with him, and consulted his feelings before I asked him for his news. What a blessing a woman's vanity is sometimes! I almost forgot my risks and responsibilities in my anxieties to be charming. For a minute or two I felt a warm little flutter of triumph. And it was a triumph, even with an old man. In a quarter of an hour I had him smirking and smiling, hanging on my lightest words in ecstasy, and answering all the questions I put to him like a good little child. Here is his account of affairs at Thorpe Ambrose, as I gently extracted it from him, bit by bit. In the first place, the news of Armadale's death has reached Miss Milroy. It has so completely overwhelmed her that her father has been compelled to remove her from the school. She is back at the cottage, and the doctor is in daily attendance. Do I pity her? Yes, I pity her exactly as much as she once pitied me. In the next place, the state of affairs at the great house, which I expected to find some difficulty in comprehending, turns out to be quite intelligible, and certainly not discouraging so far. Only yesterday, the lawyers on both sides came to an understanding. Mr. Darch, the family solicitor of the Blanchards and Armadale's bitter enemy in pastimes, represents the interests of Miss Blanchard, who, in the absence of any male heir, is next heir to the estate, and who has, it appears, been in London for some time past. Mr. Smart, of Norwich, originally employed to overlook Bashwood, represents the deceased Armadale. And this is what the two lawyers have settled between them. Mr. Darch, acting for Miss Blanchard, has claimed the possession of the estate and the right of receiving the rents at the Christmas audit in her name. Mr. Smart, on his side, has admitted that there is great weight in the family solicitor's application. He cannot see his way, as things are now, to contesting the question of Armadale's death, and he will consent to offer no resistance to the application if Mr. Darch will consent, on his side, to assume the responsibility of taking possession in Miss Blanchard's name. This Mr. Darch has already done, and the estate is now virtually in Miss Blanchard's possession. One result of this course of proceedings will be, as Bashwood thinks, to put Mr. Darch in the position of the person who really decides on my claim to the widow's place and the widow's money. The income being charged on the estate, it must come out of Miss Blanchard's pocket, and the question of paying it would appear, therefore, to be a question for Miss Blanchard's lawyer. 
Tomorrow will probably decide whether this view is the right one, for my letter to Armadale's representatives will have been delivered at the great house this morning. So much for what old Bashwood had to tell me. Having recovered my influence over him, and possessed myself of all his information so far, the next thing to consider was the right use to turn him to in the future. He was entirely at my disposal, for his place at the steward's office has been already taken by Miss Blanchard's man of business, and he pleaded hard to be allowed to stay and serve my interests in London. There would not have been the least danger in letting him stay, for I had, as a matter of course, left him undisturbed in his conviction that I really am the widow of Armadale of Thorpe Ambrose. But with the doctor's resources at my command, I wanted no assistance of any sort in London, and it occurred to me that I might make Bashwood more useful by sending him back to Norfolk to watch events there in my interests. He looked sorely disappointed, having had an eye evidently to paying his court to me in my widowed condition, when I told him of the conclusion at which I had arrived. But a few words of persuasion, and a modest hint that he might cherish hopes in the future if he served me obediently in the present, did wonders in reconciling him to the necessity of meeting my wishes. He asked helplessly for instructions when it was time for him to leave me and travel back by the evening train. I could give him none, for I had no idea as yet what the legal people might or might not do. But suppose something happens, he persisted, that I don't understand. What am I to do, so far away from you? I could only give him one answer. Do nothing, I said. Whatever it is, hold your tongue about it, and write or come up to London immediately to consult me. With those parting directions, and with an understanding that we were to correspond regularly, I let him kiss my hand, and sent him off to the train. Now that I am alone again, and able to think calmly of the interview between me and my elderly admirer, I find myself recalling a certain change in old Bashwood's manner, which puzzled me at the time, and which puzzles me still. Even in his first moments of agitation at seeing me, I thought that his eye rested on my face with a new kind of interest while I was speaking to him. Besides this, he dropped a word or two afterward, in telling me of his lonely life at Thorpe Ambrose, which seemed to imply that he had been sustained in his solitude by a feeling of confidence about his future relations with me when we next met. If he had been a younger and bolder man, and if any such discovery had been possible, I should almost have suspected him of having found out something about my past life, which had made him privately confident of controlling me, if I showed any disposition to deceive and desert him again. But such an idea as this, in connection with old Bashwood, is simply absurd. Perhaps I am overexcited by the suspense and anxiety of my present position? Perhaps the merest fancies and suspicions are leading me astray? Let this be as it may. I have, at any rate, more serious subjects than the subject of old Bashwood to occupy me now. Tomorrow's post may tell me what Armadale's representatives think of the claim of Armadale's widow. November 26th. The answer has arrived this morning, in the form, as Bashwood supposed, of a letter from Mr. Darch. The crabbed old lawyer acknowledges my letter in three lines. Before he takes any steps or expresses any opinion on the subject, he wants evidence of identity as well as the evidence of the certificate, 
and he ventures to suggest that it may be desirable, before we go any further, to refer him to my legal advisers. Two o'clock. The doctor called shortly after twelve to say that he had found a lodging for me within twenty minutes' walk of the sanitarium. In return for his news, I showed him Mr. Darch's letter. He took it away at once to his lawyers, and came back with the necessary information for my guidance. I have answered Mr. Darch by sending him the address of my legal advisers, otherwise the doctor's lawyers, without making any comment on the desire he had expressed for additional evidence of the marriage. This is all that can be done today. Tomorrow will bring with it events of greater interest, for tomorrow the doctor is to make his declaration before the magistrate, and tomorrow I am to move to my new lodging in my widow's weeds. November 27th. Fairweather Vale Villas. The declaration has been made with all the necessary formalities, and I have taken possession in my widow's costume of my new rooms. I ought to be excited by the opening of this new act in the drama, and by the venturesome part that I am playing in it myself. Strange to say, I am quiet and depressed. The thought of midwinter has followed me to my new abode, and is pressing on me heavily at this moment. I have no fear of any accident happening, in the interval that still must pass before I step publicly into the place of Armadale's widow. But when that time comes, and when Midwinter finds me, as sooner or later find me he must, figuring in my false character, and settled in the position that I have usurped, then, I ask myself, what will happen? The answer still comes as it first came to me this morning, when I put on my widow's dress. Now, as then, the presentiment is fixed in my mind that he will kill me. If it was not too late to draw back. Absurd. I shall shut up my journal. November 28th. The lawyers have heard from Mr. Darch, and have sent him the declaration by return post. When the doctor brought me this news, I asked him whether his lawyers were aware of my present address, and, finding that he had not yet mentioned it to them, I begged that he would continue to keep it a secret in the future. The doctor laughed. "'Are you afraid of Mr. Darch's stealing a march on us, and coming to attack you personally?' he asked. I accepted the imputation as the easiest way of making him comply with my request. "'Yes,' I said. "'I am afraid of Mr. Darch.' My spirits have risen since the doctor left me. There is a pleasant sensation of security in feeling that no strangers are in possession of my address. I am easy enough in my mind today to notice— how wonderfully well I look in my widow's weeds, and to make myself agreeable to the people of the house. Midwinter disturbed me a little again last night, but I have got over the ghastly delusion which possessed me yesterday. I know better now than to dread violence from him when he discovers what I have done, and there is still less fear of his stooping to assert his claim to a woman who has practiced on him such a deception as mine. The one serious trial that I shall be put to when the day of reckoning comes will be the trial of preserving my false character in his presence. I shall be safe in his loathing and contempt for me after that. On the day when I have denied him to his face, I shall have seen the last of him forever. Shall I be able to deny him to his face? Shall I be able to look at him and speak to him as if he had never been more to me than a friend? How do I know till the time comes? Was there ever such an infatuated fool as I am? To be writing of him at all, when writing only encourages me to think of him. I will make a new resolution. 
From this time forth his name shall appear no more in these pages. Monday, December 1st. The last month of the worn-out year, 1851. If I allowed myself to look back, what a miserable year I should see added to all the other miserable years that are gone. But I have made my resolution to look forward only, and I mean to keep it. I have nothing to record in the last two days, except that on the twenty-ninth I remembered Bashwood and wrote to tell him of my new address. This morning the lawyers heard again from Mr. Darch. He acknowledges the receipt of the declaration, but postpones stating the decision at which he has arrived until he has communicated with the trustees, under the late Mr. Blanchard's will, and has received final instructions from his client, Miss Blanchard. The doctor's lawyers declare that this last letter is a mere device for gaining time, with what object they are, of course, not in a position to guess. The doctor himself says, facetiously, it is the usual lawyer's object of making a long bill. My own idea is that Mr. Darch has his suspicions of something wrong, and that his purpose in trying to gain time. 10. At night. I had written as far as that last unfinished sentence, toward four in the afternoon, when I was startled by hearing a cab drive up to the door. I went to the window and got there just in time to see old Bashwood getting out with an activity of which I should never have supposed him capable. So little did I anticipate the tremendous discovery that was going to burst on me in another minute, that I turned to the glass and wondered what the susceptible old gentleman would say to me in my widow's cap. The instant he entered the room, I saw that some serious disaster had happened. His eyes were wild, his wig was awry. He approached me with a strange mixture of eagerness and dismay. "'I've done as you told me,' he whispered breathlessly. "'I've held my tongue about it and come straight to you.' He caught me by the hand before I could speak, with a boldness quite new in my experience of him. "'Oh, how can I break it to you?' he burst out. "'I'm beside myself when I think of it.' "'When you can speak,' I said, putting him into a chair, "'speak out. I see in your face that you bring me news I don't look for from Thorpe Ambrose.' He put his hand into the breast pocket of his coat and drew out a letter. He took the letter and looked at me. New, new, news you don't look for, he stammered, but not from Thorpe Ambrose. Not from Thorpe Ambrose? No, from the sea. The first dawning of the truth broke on me at those words. I couldn't speak. I could only hold out my hand to him for the letter. He still shrank from giving it to me. I daren't, I daren't, he said to himself, vacantly. The shock of it might be the death of her. I snatched the letter from him. One glance at the writing on the address was enough. My hands fell on my lap with the letter held fast in them. I sat petrified, without moving, without speaking, without hearing a word of what Bashwood was saying to me, and slowly realized the terrible truth. The man whose widow I had claimed to be was a living man to confront me. In vain I had mixed the drink at Naples. In vain I had betrayed him into Manuel's hands. Twice I had set the deadly snare for him, and twice Armadale had escaped me. I came to my sense of outward things again and found Bashwood on his knees at my feet, crying. "'You look angry,' he murmured helplessly. "'Are you angry with me?' Oh, if you only knew what hopes I had when we last saw each other, and how cruelly that letter has dashed them all to the ground. I put the miserable old creature back from me, but very gently, 
Hush, I said. Don't distress me now. I want composure. I want to read the letter. He went away submissively to the other end of the room. As soon as my eye was off him, I heard him say to himself, with impotent malignity, If the sea had been of my mind, the sea would have drowned him. One by one I slowly opened the folds of the letter, feeling, while I did so, the strangest incapacity of fixing my attention on the very lines that I was burning to read. But why dwell any longer on sensations which I can't describe? It will be more to the purpose if I place the letter itself, for future reference, on this page of my journal. Fumi, Illyria, November 21st, 1851 Mr. Bashwood The address I date from will surprise you, and you will be more surprised still when you hear how it is that I come to write to you from a port on the Adriatic Sea. I have been the victim of a rascally attempt at robbery and murder. The robbery has succeeded, and it is only through the mercy of God that the murder did not succeed, too. I hired a yacht rather more than a month ago at Naples. I sailed, I am glad to think now, without any friend with me, from Messina. From Messina I went for a cruise in the Adriatic. Two days out we were caught in a storm. Storms get up in a hurry, and go down in a hurry in those parts. The vessel behaved nobly. I declare I feel the tears in my eyes now, when I think of her at the bottom of the sea. Toward sunset it began to moderate, and by midnight, except for a long, smooth swell, the sea was as quiet as need be. I went below, a little tired, having helped in working the yacht while the gale lasted, and fell asleep in five minutes. About two hours after I was woke by something falling into my cabin through a chink of the ventilator in the upper part of the door. I jumped up and found a bit of paper with a key wrapped in it, and with writing on the inner side, in a hand which it was not very easy to read. Up to this time I had not had the ghost of a suspicion that I was alone at sea with a gang of murderous vagabonds, excepting only one, who would stick at nothing. I had got on very well with my sailing-master, the worst scoundrel of the lot, and better still with his English mate. The sailors, being all foreigners, I had very little to say to. They did their work, and no quarrels and nothing unpleasant happened. If anybody had told me, before I went to bed on the night after the storm, that the sailing-master and the crew, and the mate, who had been no better than the rest of them at starting, were all in a conspiracy to rob me of the money I had on board, and then to drown me in my own vessel afterward, I should have laughed in his face. Just remember that, and then fancy for yourself, for I'm sure I can't tell you, what I must have thought when I opened the paper round the key, and read what I now copy, from the mate's writing, as follows. Sir, stay in your bed till you hear the boat shove off from the starboard side, or you are a dead man. Your money is stolen, and in five minutes' time the yacht will be scuttled, and the cabin hatch will be nailed down on you. Dead men tell no tales. The sailing-master's notion is to leave proofs afloat that the vessel has floundered with all on board. It was his doing, to begin with, and we were all in it. I can't find it in my heart not to give you a chance for your life. It's a bad chance, but I can do no more. I should be murdered myself if I didn't seem to go with the rest. The key of your cabin door is thrown back to you, inside this. Don't be alarmed when you hear the hammer above. I shall do it, and I shall have short nails in my hand as well as long, and use the short ones only. 
Wait till you hear the boat with all of us shove off, and then pry up the cabin hatch with your back. The vessel will float a quarter of an hour after the holes are bored in her. Slip into the sea on the port side, and keep the vessel between you and the boat. You will find plenty of loose lumber, wrenched away on purpose, drifting about to hold on by. It's a fine night and a smooth sea, and there's a chance that a ship may pick you up while there's life left in you. I can do no more. Yours truly, J.M. As I came to those last words, I heard the hammering down of the hatch over my head. I don't suppose I'm more of a coward than most people, but there was a moment when the sweat poured down me like rain. I got to be my own man again before the hammering was done, and found myself thinking of somebody very dear to me in England. I said to myself, I'll have a try for my life, for her sake, though the chances are dead against me. I put a letter from that person I have mentioned into one of the stoppered bottles of my dressing-case, along with the mate's warning, in case I live to see him again. I hung this and a flask of whiskey in a sling around my neck, and, after first dressing myself in my confusion, thought better of it and stripped again, for swimming, to my shirt and drawers. By the time I had done that the hammering was over and there was such a silence that I could hear the water bubbling into the scuttled vessel amidships. The next noise was the noise of the boat and the villains in her, always excepting my friend, the mate, shoving off from the starboard side. I waited for the splash of the oars in the water. Then I got my back under the hatch. The mate had kept his promise. I lifted it easily, crept across the deck, under the cover of bulwarks on all fours, and slipped into the sea on the port side. Lots of things were floating about. I took the first thing I came to, a hen-coop, and swam away with it a couple hundred yards, keeping the yacht between me and the boat. Having got that distance, I was seized with a shivering fit, and I stopped, fearing the cramp next, to take a pull at my flask. When I had closed the flask again, I turned for a moment to look back, and saw the yacht in the act of sinking. In a minute more there was nothing between me and the boat but the pieces of wreck that had been purposely thrown out to float. The moon was shining, and, if they had had a glass on the boat, I believe they might have seen my head, though I carefully kept the hen-coop between me and them. As it was, they laid on their oars, and I heard loud voices among them disputing. After what seemed an age to me, I discovered what the dispute was about. The boat's head was suddenly turned my way. Some cleverer scoundrel than the rest, the sailing-master, I dare say, had evidently persuaded them to row back over the place where the yacht had gone down, and make quite sure that I had gone down with her. They were more than halfway across the distance that separated us, and I had given myself up for lost when I heard a cry from one of them, and saw the boat's progress suddenly checked. In a minute or two more the boat's head was turned again, and they rowed straight away from me, like men rowing for their lives. I looked on one side toward the land, and saw nothing. I looked on the other side toward the sea, and discovered what the boat's crew had discovered before me, a sail in the distance, growing steadily brighter and bigger in the moonlight the longer I looked at it. In a quarter of an hour more the vessel was within hail of me, and the crew had got me on board. End of section 56 Read by Marianne Spiegel in Chicago, Illinois